Well, thanks to Katie for reading our scripture tonight from 1 Kings 19. As you just heard, that passage centers around the prophet Elijah, who lived and ministered in northern Israel about the 9th century BC. That's nearly 3,000 years ago. And just before the 19th chapter, Elijah was sent by God to speak out against King Ahab of Israel and his wicked wife Jezebel. They had taken the nation of Israel down a road of idolatry. They had created their own priesthood to the false god Baal. And so, as you know, maybe, there's that story where Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal on top of the mount. And the 450 prophets get there and they're going to call down uh, to see whose god is more powerful. So they get their chance, their god doesn't show up. And then Elijah, just one prophet of Yahweh... Uh, prays to God and he burns up the offering and shows that he is more powerful. So Elijah must just be filled with confidence at this time. His God shows up. He orders the execution of these false prophets. And there he is. And then he goes and confronts King Ahab and says, You know, you need to repent of, of this sin. You've been the leader of the people of God. You've been leading them down the wrong road. Full of just victory and confidence, right? He's, God must be on his side. He's feeling really good. Well, what happens is Ahab then tells his wife Jezebel, who puts a hit out on Elijah's head, to put it kind of in colloquial terms. Elijah just is depressed. It's not what he expected at all. He expected, I've just stood up for God. God has shown up, defeated all these false prophets, and now what's going on? I'm going to be killed? So he runs out in the wilderness is nearly suicidal until the angel of the Lord comes to strengthen him. And I think it begs the question, when our expectations are shattered, is what God actually does enough? And to put it more directly, when our expectations of who God is and who God should be for us are shattered, is who God actually is enough? You and I live lives of expectations. Most of us live oscillating between the past, focus on the past expectations, and future expectations. We focus on the past and the happy memories, maybe where our expectations were met or even exceeded. We like to talk about those. Those are important things to talk about. And sometimes the past brings up bitter memories of unmet expectations. Or we live with our heads in the future, thinking of what we expect to happen tomorrow or next month or next year or five years down the road. But most of us, and me included, have a difficult time living in the now. Because the now is always the litmus test for your expectations. Your expectations in the now will either be proved or they'll be disappointed. So, let's take this on the easy level. There's what I call first world expectations. Um, your friend recommends this restaurant. <laughs> In fact, uh, I'll use a real life example. Uh, we heard great things about Pelican Brewery. Yay, Pelican Brewery. So we're down in Oregon. Oh, Pelican Brewery is going to be so great. We've got a beautiful view. 
I don't like any of these drinks. I don't like any of this food. It, it was just a big letdown. Sorry if you like Pelican. I just not a big deal. First world problems, right? Unmet expectations. Or you go to a concert. You've never seen your favorite band in concert before. And you go for the first time. And they play all their experimental new stuff. It's like a different genre. And you're like, I just want to know the song. They play the songs that I know. Okay, those are first world problems. So you get what I'm saying? Unmet expectations. But what about, what about when the stakes get a little more serious? Uh, like in the marriage relationship. In fact, that's one of the things that we talk about frequently in premarital counseling is going in and naming your expectations. Because if you go into a relationship and you don't actually say what you're expecting from one another, it could be a real train wreck, right? If you don't, ex- if you don't talk about your expectations about how you're going to view money and spend money or your expectations about relationship roles, like who's going to do what and why, it could be a real problem. Expectations matter. And I cannot imagine... A realm of life where expectations matter more than our expectations about God, about who God is. If you have an inaccurate picture of who God is, you are frequently going to experience disappointment with God. In our text this evening, we're going to begin a story about John the Baptist. He's confused in this particular text about his expectations of Jesus. We're going to walk through the story together, kind of just look at it as it's given to us, and then at the end we'll come and look at some of the implications that the story might have for our life. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples... He departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Lord, uh, help us not to stumble over you. Lord, we confess that as we come here, we have expectations, things we've been taught, things we've just inferred. Help us to be humble enough to see that our expectations... Uh, who we think you are, could be off, probably are to some degree. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would teach us, that you would reveal yourself to us a little bit more this evening. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we dig into these first six verses of Matthew 11... The first verse that we come to is obviously a transition verse. It says, now when Jesus had finished these things. But it's not just a transition from chapter 10 to chapter 11. It's actually a transition from Matthew 1 through 10 to 11. Matthew, there's four gospel writers, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and they all give us a different perspective, a different account of the life of Jesus. And Matthew... Uh, 
uh, of all the evangelists is ever the teacher. So if you're systematic or if you're a teacher out there, maybe, not an art teacher maybe, but <laughs> uh, if you're a, a teacher, you probably can appreciate how Matthew chunks his teaching together. So in Matthew 1 through 4, uh, Matthew is telling us about Jesus being this Emmanuel, this promised God with us. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus has, or Matthew has compiled Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches us the ethics of the kingdom of God. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus demonstrates those ethics he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in real life, in real action. And then in chapter 10, his Sermon on Mission, Jesus prepares his disciples to, the, to go practice what they heard Jesus say and what they saw Jesus do. All right? Good teaching style, right? Not just, just as an aside, it shows us that discipleship or following Jesus is more than just knowing the right stuff and it's more than just doing the right stuff. It is a combination of, of having the head and the heart combined together and living a life with Christ. Okay, as we get into verse 2, we're introduced to someone we haven't seen since chapter 3. It's Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John was six months older than Jesus, and he was known for being a fiery prophet. He was the forerunner, preparing people, preparing his community for Jesus. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. The same John who is the forerunner of Jesus, who is saying, make straight the way of the Lord, talking about Jesus being mightier than he, that same John sends some of his own disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the expected one, or should we be looking for somebody else? Are you the expected one? Some translations have, are you the coming one? The expected one, or the coming one, is kind of a, technical term for the Messiah or Christ. The expected one is the one that the prophets said God would send in order to rescue his people and to set people free from bondage and captivity. All right. So when John is sending his followers out to Jesus to say, are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? What he is saying is, are you the one that the prophets promised were coming from God to rescue us? Are you that one? Now, John believed Jesus was the expected one, but his confidence was shaken. Why would this fiery prophet, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, why would he doubt? Well, the first clue is his location. Where's John writing from in this verse 2? He's writing from prison. That would make one think a little bit, right? Herod the Tetrarch had a brother named Philip. Both were kind of dirtbags, and we can go into that some other time. Um, th those, those passages will come up. <laughs> but Herod fell in love with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. All right? And they begin this adulterous relationship. Well, John the Baptist heard about this, and he confronted Herod and said, you know, what you're doing isn't right. I mean, duh, right? You're supposed to be the leader of the spiritual and political leader of the people of God, and you're sleeping with your brother's wife. That's not okay in any setting, right? So, in an effort to save face, Herod arrests John the Baptist and puts him in prison. 
Now, Herod is known for a lot of things. Most of them aren't good. But one of the big things he's known for is rebuilding the temple of God uh, right in Jerusalem. The second temple is mag- was magnificent before Rome destroyed it. Um, but the other thing he's known for is rebuilding a horrible fortress called Machairus. It was a castle fortress built about 3,600 feet above sea level. If you were at the Dead Sea and you go halfway down the Dead Sea, it would be five miles to the east of the Dead Sea. And I know some of you have been around the Dead Sea. Uh, you guys were there, right, Tim? Hot and desolate, especially uh, in, in summertime. So for Herod, he, sometimes he would send Herodias there. It was like Palm Springs. Palm Springs is probably, I hear, a great place if you... Uh, have enough money to have air conditioning and you're into golf. But Palm Springs would be a horrible place if you're like a landscaper, <laughs> right? Because, so it depends on your, uh, it depends on your setting. So, so Machairus is this castle fortress built out in this hot, arid part of, uh, of eastern Palestine. Great place if you're in luxury, but for a prison, not such a great place. So you can understand if John the Baptist is a little bit confused. It, If Jesus is the coming one, if he's the expected one, then why am I, his cousin, in prison in this fortress? Okay? But that doesn't quite cut it for me. John was a tough guy. He wore camel's hair, itching all the time. The guy ate bugs for his diet. He lived out in the wilderness. I'm thinking maybe prison was an upgrade for his normal living situation. So I don't think John here is whining about his situation, saying, oh, this, this, why am I in prison? I think the second clue to John's confusion about Jesus can be found in John's very own teaching. Back in chapter 3, we're introduced to John baptizing people who repented of their sins. He was preaching about the coming one, the expected one, who would bring the kingdom of God. And these are the types of things that John the Baptist was saying about Jesus. First of all, when the religious leaders came, he called them a brood of vipers. He claimed that if the religious leaders didn't repent, even they uh, would be judged, even though they were Israelites. He said things like, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist also said, as for me, I baptize you with water uh, for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Alright? Then he says, his winnowing fork is at hand. He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather up the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's pretty big into axes and fire. He's saying that he's expecting that the expected one is bringing the hammer down on injustice. Does that make sense? So that's that's what John was teaching in chapter 3. Safe to say, John was expecting the expected one to come in guns blazing. Clean in house. John was expecting judgment time on the corrupt and freedom time for the oppressed and the captives. But things were not going as expected. Jesus was still teaching in these little outlying areas. He'd yet to take his show to Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the political seats of power were. I mean, if you were a Messiah, wouldn't you go right into Jerusalem and start taking down the people from the top, right? That's how many people would do it. Plus, if Jesus was the expected one, 
He wouldn't let his own cousin sit in prison. Or so you'd think. I wonder if at this point John the Baptist felt a little bit like Elijah, the prophet that we just read about. He's standing up for the power, against the powers of corruption, even called the king out to his face on his own sin. And from all worldly appearances, John the Baptist seems and maybe even feels abandoned by God, much like Elijah did after he stood up to uh, Ahab and Jezebel and then was almost killed. So did God let him, let him down, or were his expectations off? John's disciples come to Jesus and say, Are you the expected one, or should we be looking for somebody else? Basically, we don't want to be wasting our time here. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. All right? Blind receive sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the, de- uh, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. First, I just love, and I hope you notice this, that Jesus doesn't give excuses. You know, any politician in our world would probably give a press concert, conference and, and try to explain why he or she, uh, why the, the, the economy is so bad, or why we can't get any bills passed. And You know, politicians do that kind of thing. Jesus just says, hey, you know what? Look at the evidence. Jesus himself in Matthew 5 through 7 said, You will know a tree by its fruit. Right? Like fig trees, they produce figs. They don't produce thistles. And he goes to that whole spiel. So he just says, Look at what you've been hearing me teach and what you've been seeing me do. That will speak to you about who I am. And basically, he's saying, My teaching lines up with the Hebrew scriptures. I'm fully on God's agenda. In fact, Jesus' teachings have been calling people to repentance just like John. And just like John, Jesus had been proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. And just like John, Jesus warned people who would not repent that they would be judged. So Jesus isn't like skirting the judgment issue. And the things Jesus was doing, healing the blind and the lame, raising the dead, these were all things the prophet said that the coming one or the expected one would do. So what is John's problem? Expectations. His problem is with expectations. In telling John's disciples, so Jesus, John's disciples are there, and Jesus tells them, go Tell John what you have seen me do and heard me say. Jesus is referencing multiple prophecies that talk about the expected one. Uh, The big ones are Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. There's also some Isaiah uh, 41 and 29 in there and some other stuff mixed in. Listen, for example, to Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. This is talking about the age of the expected one. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Uh, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Sounds just like the stuff Jesus is doing. Now, John the Baptist, when his disciples told him that, what Jesus was doing, he would know that scripture. But he would also know that right before that scripture about uh, blind seeing and all this stuff is another scripture in verse 4 of Isaiah 35, and it says this, The judgment of God will come. Okay, hold that. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, 
says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable day of the Lord. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus stands up in his hometown. He's handed the Isaiah scroll. He reads that exact passage from Isaiah 61, and he says, Today in your presence that scripture has been fulfilled. Now, if you know your Isaiah, like John the Baptist would, there's something missing from that passage. The end of Isaiah 61 verse 2 says this, And the day of the vengeance of our God. Again, Jesus is leaving out the second part of these verses. He's only focusing his actions and his words on the good news of these prophecies. Why is that? I mean, that's what John is ticked off about. He's not understanding what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is fulfilling part of these prophecies, but he's not bringing the judgment. Like John was talking about with winnowing forks and axes and fire. We're going to cover that in more detail, by the way, next week, or in a couple weeks. But let me just get to the point. Jesus is saying, in all of his teachings about uh, judgment and things like that, he is saying, everyone needs to repent in order to find rescue. If Jesus is the expected one, then he is the agent that God sends to bring the kingdom. I mean, that's it. And if that is true, if Jesus is the agent to bring God's kingdom then he's going to be a divisive figure. You're either with the king of the kingdom or you're not with the king of the kingdom. I mean, it's kind of the way kingdoms work. Um, but if Jesus brought the hammer of judgment down in that day or even in our day, who could be saved? Who could be rescued? And I just think, what a Lord of grace to suspend that judgment for a time and to preach and do the good news of those prophecies to give us chances and opportunities to turn to Him and to be rescued by Him before that day. That is awesome. So Jesus focuses His attention on calling people to repent, calling them to follow, calling them to be fully alive in Him. Judgment will come, but until it comes... We live in an age in a time of grace. So Jesus says, don't, you know, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me or who doesn't stumble over the way I fulfill the role of the expected one. You hear that? Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over the way that I fulfill the role of the expected one. That's what Jesus says to John. Notice he doesn't condemn John for his doubt. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. You need to hear that. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. If you don't have doubt sometimes, you're living in a fantasy land. It's okay to have doubts. Like, that's a human thing. It means you're thinking. You need to work through things. The life of following Jesus is hard. And it's made even harder... When we have false expectations. 
I think there's many different false expectations that spread throughout the church, but I'm going to focus on three this evening. So this would be the implications of the text for us. The first is the false expectation that we view Jesus as a good luck charm. In this view, Jesus is impersonal at best, or, or he's impersonal at worst or best, he's a person or just a force among many others. He may or may not be able to really help me, so my expectations are pretty low anyway. Uh, in the Jesus as good luck charm view, prayer is something you tack on to something you're already going to do anyway. You're going to quit your job and move across town for another? Eh, it can't hurt to pray for success, but you don't really expect too much from Jesus as good luck charm. Jesus is just something to make you feel better, but he certainly isn't Lord, and you're not really sure he cares too much about your life anyway. Right? The second view is Jesus as genie. In this view, Jesus is more personal. You might talk to him as a person, maybe even quite frequently. But your prayers mostly consist of requests. You're not too interested in what he might have to say, and you certainly don't want to recognize any claim he has over your life. He died for your sin. That's great. You've got your ticket to eternal life because you said some words when you were a kid, or you did something with water that your mom said, and now you just want Jesus to go to work for you. You pray about everything. Jesus, I have a cold. Heal me. Uh, Jesus, make my children listen to me. Uh, Jesus, make that other person like me. Because I've got nothing to change about myself. Jesus, I need a raise. Jesus, bless me. Now, there's nothing bad about inviting Jesus into your life or asking for what you need. But in the Jesus as genie view, he's there primarily to make you feel better. And that just doesn't jive with what the Gospels say about Jesus as Son of God, conqueror of evil, Lord of the universe, victor over death, ruler and judge of earth, and humanity and eternity. I just got to say, when I say Lord of the universe, does anyone think in He-Man? There's got to be a better title than that, but... Dang, he man. Um, <clears throat> the third view is a little closer to the truth, a little closer to home for most of us. And that is the view that Jesus is bodyguard. I couldn't think of a better thing than, than that, but Jesus as bodyguard. In this view, we've allowed Jesus into our hearts to a point. Um, we repent of our sin. And we might seek to make changes in our lives as long as it doesn't cost too much. You know, Jesus can't have those parts of our lives, but most of the other stuff is okay. We might even be involved in our local church. We do our devotionals. We enjoy worship. Might even read our Bibles more times than not. But we don't like it too much when our Bibles start reading us. Oh, that's... You're pushing my buttons. We do all these things... But we have some expectations attached with going to church and doing our devotionals and serving others. We, I do those things, but there's some, there's some expectations attached. We expect that if we're loyal to Jesus, he will shield us and protect us from anything unpleasant. In fact, sometimes we have the false expectation that the more we pray or the more we serve or the more we read the Bible the more Jesus will protect us and our families and our churches from sickness and divisions and financial hard times. And when bad things happen, we don't really have a place for it. 
So we use cliche words filled with horrible theology like, God meant for me to break my leg in 14 places. We just don't know what to do with hard times. Did we do something wrong? Weren't we close enough to Jesus? And of course, when I say those things, if you're honest, there's a little bit more like, well, that's kind of how I think. And there's a little bit more like, that sounds ridiculous when he says it out loud. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say Jesus is our bodyguard. In fact, Jesus warns his disciples many times that they will be beaten. Some of them will be killed. He says, everyone will hate you. Look up chapter 10 in Matthew's gospel. Everyone will hate you because of my name. That doesn't sound like a very pleasant thing. Jesus warns his disciples he is going to die. Then he tells his disciples that they must die to themselves if they are going to live for him. So where do we get these false expectations about talisman, good luck charm Jesus, or genie Jesus, or even bodyguard Jesus, or any of our other ones? Of course, we get it from all kinds of sources, blah, 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 TV and music and all the stuff that people always talk about, literature. And unfortunately, a lot of these things come from bad teaching in the church. Bad teaching. Uh, when the first Hindu guru came to New York City, he realized early on that the U.S., uh, the people of the United States wouldn't accept his teaching because it was too rigorous and too hopeless. So he watered down the expectations and even the cycles of reincarnation to be more palpable for American masses. I fear that many of our churches have done the same. It's much easier to proclaim a gospel that's therapeutic, how Jesus can meet your needs. Uh, it's easier to preach that than it is to preach the fullness of what Jesus actually says. Those who find their lives will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And sometimes when our expectations aren't met and we get angry over injustice, we want Jesus to come in guns blazing. I was wronged, or this person I love was wronged. Do something about it. I want justice. But let's be really careful about what we're asking for. I don't think there's one of us here, no one that I've ever met, including myself, that can handle real justice. I'd be found guilty, and I'm suspecting that you would be too. We would all be guilty except for the love and grace and sacrifice of Jesus. And when I realized that, I realized that I am absolutely lost without Jesus. I, I realized that a whole new uh, set of expectations are, are put upon me. Jesus like we sang the song, and we're going to actually have that as a song of response later on. Jesus really is enough. I know that when I sing that song enough, I, it's actually more of a prayer, because let's be honest, I, I don't think he really is enough sometimes. I have all these other safety nets. But when I come face to face with my desire to, you know, Jesus to come in guns blazing when I've been wronged and to bring justice, and I realize what, if he actually brought justice, I would be condemned just like everybody else, then I know he has to be enough, he, and he's the only thing that could be enough. He really is all I need. He never promises me or you that uh, our lives are going to be easy, before the end of time at least. He does promise that all who follow him will have eternal life, better life, 
fuller life, better than we can possibly imagine life for eternity. And that's more than a pipe dream expectation. That is good news, which is what gospel means. All right, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this word that um, is kind of a mirror for me, at least has been a mirror this week, and I pray it'd be a mirror for all of us, um, showing us our false expectations of you. Lord, of trying to actually contain you and make ourselves Lord over you. And um, Lord, forgive us of our expectations where we've boxed you up and, um, and turned you into something you're not. Lord, we confess our frustrations with you because we, we've pictured you wrong. Lord, I pray for your help to have a correct view of you. I pray that your scriptures, uh, your word would, would, would inform us and come alive in us, that we would see you, the full spectrum of who you are, of who you re- revealed yourself to be. Lord, I can say with my mouth, because I believe your scriptures, that you are more than enough, that you are all that I need. But I feel in my head and my heart that I resist that statement. Lord, for all of us who are resistant to that, help us to surrender a little bit more of ourselves this evening. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.